Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Christine Fennessy, one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host this week. Coming up, an interview with Steve Magnus. His new book, Peak Performance, which he co-authored with writer Brad Stolberg, is a surprising, provocative look at the science of success. It's about what makes people across a range of professions, from CEOs to artists to musicians, masters in their field, and how their strategies can make you a better runner. As a coach working with, you know, from beginner to elite professional runners, what, what I started to notice in, in my own coaching is like the things influencing it weren't necessarily always the running books or the training articles. It was taking pieces of information from like psychology or a business book and, and bringing that back into my own coaching. And that, that Taylor Swift's drummer, Matt Billingsley, uh, example is a great one because it's literally, we were just having a conversation on the phone and he just goes through his warm up and we're like, oh my gosh, that's the same thing I do like mentally and almost physically getting ready for a 5K race. Then in the kick, how to make those sweaty, muggy, and super hot runs more manageable. But first, I tag along with one of my colleagues as he makes a final, desperate attempt to heal his pain. Thanks for joining us. A few years ago, I really messed myself up on a run. A painful knot formed at the juncture of my butt and my right hamstring. I sat on tennis balls. I foam rolled it. I was constantly squeezing my butt cheek, trying to massage the ache away, but nothing helped. Normally, if something bugs me, I quit running and ride my bike until whatever it is goes away. That was not an option, however. I had a marathon in a few weeks. I bumped into a cyclist friend of mine and told her about the pain in my butt. First thing she said to me, you need to see Rose. Rosemary Rotenberger, as I would come to learn, is a legend here in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. Among bike racers especially, she's to performance what air is to tires, simply indispensable. I'd never been to a massage therapist before that, and frankly, I didn't expect much. But I got myself onto Rose's table as soon as I could. I expected her to pummel my upper right leg, but instead, she focused on the muscles in my lower left leg. Those muscles, unbeknownst to me, were super tight. The tightness affected my stride and had thrown it out of whack, so my right side had been overcompensating. The result? Butt pain. The tightness, however, didn't stand a chance against Rose's steel fingers and bionic forearms, and the next day, I was running pain-free. At the time, Rose's methods felt like magic, but really, she's more like a detective than a wizard. She uses her sense of touch to work backward from the pain and discover clues that lead her to the real culprit. Needless to say, when it came to the value of massage, I was a convert. So after hearing that my colleague Warren Green was nursing an injury that he couldn't pin down and couldn't fix, I found him in his office and said, you need to see Rose. His reaction, yes, please, I will try anything. I didn't know the details about Warren's situation, so as we were driving to Rose's office after work this past February, I asked him how his runs had been going. I haven't been running. Um, I haven't been running since uh, November. Whoa, I didn't realize it had been that long. Yeah, yeah, I'm messed. I mean, I was really messed. Like, I got myself really messed up. Basically, 
Warren had pain in his lower left abdomen, near his hip bone. It only hurt when he ran, and it had gotten worse. The stabbing pain had become so intense, he was actually afraid to run. And for Warren, running isn't just his job, it's his passion, the thing he loves the most. I asked him about his mental state, given his physical state. Uh, I think humbling is the most, the best way I think I can describe it. Um, just because, you know, as a runner, I mean, I've, I started running 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, not to run for a week was a rare occurrence for me. And now to be off for many months has really made me sort of reevaluate what it is to be me. I haven't gone on a lunch run. Um, I've missed out. There are a couple of friends who I really haven't connected uh, connected with. Whoa. All right. So that's terrible. Um, uh, so what? just summarize kind of quick for me what you've done so far to date. I mean, who, who have you gone to? What are sort of like the steps that you've taken? Well, um, as this was developing, um, I went to a sports medicine doc. Um, Warren had done pretty much I've everything. An x-ray and an MRI had revealed no stress fractures. A second doctor probed his lower abdominal wall and pronounced his core weak. So he started hitting the gym, and while his abs got stronger, the pain was still there. He went to a chiropractor and learned his range of motion wasn't great, but it wasn't awful either and improving it did nothing for his pain. It was all really frustrating. Perhaps the most frustrating thing of all, Warren knew he did this to himself. He overtrained, and when he started to develop pain, he didn't back off. He just ran right through it. And for me, a lot of the reason I was beating myself up was um, a 20-year college reunion. So I ran cross-country in college, and um, for our reunion, we went back, and when I say we, I ran with four guys for four years. And we all said, we're gonna go back for the 20th, uh, rented a hotel room, people got their tickets. I mean, it was on. And I honestly wanted to represent. I mean, I, I wanted to go and um, run the cross country course that I ran in college with these guys and not be, you know, the ass end. You know, I wanted to still prove 20 years later, I was, I was a good runner. He actually ended up running pretty well at that reunion last September. He finished second out of his four buddies. But he was in a world of pain the entire time. And after that, every step of every run hurt. Finally, he quit running altogether in November. To me, Warren sounded desperate. He was running out of options. I, th I think the toughest thing is going to be I've done all I've taken all this time I've done everything I've been supposed to and then if I can't run after that if I you know go out and all of a sudden oh it still hurts I, I don't know what I'm I mean that's that's gonna really suck I felt so bad for Warren I really really hoped that Rose could help him right here this driveway right here. Right here. Yep. Rose's practice is called Wellspring Performance Therapy and Integrative Bodywork, <laughs> and it's in a beautiful old stone building off a busy road in Trexler Town, Pennsylvania. A very large, very friendly terrier mix meets us at the door. Hey, there's a dog. Hey, buddy. As we walked into the waiting room, Rose came around the corner. She's got white hair, blue eyes, and a laugh that fills the whole place. Hi, Dang, Rose. 
Hi. All right, game on. <laughs> this is Warren Green. She hands Warren some paperwork to get an overview. Word up with some paperwork first just to, you know, make it legal. Warren fills out his paperwork, notes where it hurts, and reveals that he wrenched his neck the previous week doing supermans in the gym. A core strengthening move where you lay on your stomach, arms stretched over your head, and simultaneously raise your upper body and lower legs off the floor and hold it for a beat or two. After that, he changes into shorts and Rose and I meet him in her massage room. He's laying face down on the table. So what we'll do here first, let me just walk her hands down. These are the alien. Okay, now can you see that? So his right hip is up, almost a thumb. Now for me, I like, I, I don't measure. I just, I use my, you know, my thumb. Somebody ever wants to know, they can come and measure my thumb and, and see how that is. So there, there's one issue. I mean, you can kind of work our hands around here. Rose so, reads the body like a map, looking for issues that affect the whole chain of body mechanics. Warren's right hip is higher than his left. So Rose rubs her hands together, then buries her thumbs in his flesh and simultaneously presses down and across. Before the session started, Rose had asked Warren about his tolerance for discomfort. That's a key question in her practice. She'll work right up to an individual's edge, but she'll never go past it. Warren made it very clear, go as deep as you can. I know it will hurt, and I want it to hurt. When I was on Rose's table, I'd felt the same way. If we're going to do this, let's do this. So as Rose bears down on his back and the bones start to spontaneously crack in a line, I know how Warren feels, like he's being bulldozed. I'm going to anchor you here, OK? OK. All right. But the pressure works and his right hip settles down. Rose keeps working and Warren keeps groaning. When she starts on his glutes, she pauses to fill me in. Why is this glute so chronically one? Like, it's almost like the entire left side of his body is on. And when you say it's on, what do you mean it's on? On, chronically on. Like, they're, they're firing. They're like, he's just laying here. There should be, like, they, the, the muscle tone should be equal left to right. He's not doing anything except for turning his head to hear us. That's it. But that's okay. That's all right. But, I mean, it's like that's, I mean, there should be, this is, a, you know, when you are completely laid out like this, you know if something's on or off. I mean, just by palpation that way. Um, if something's chronically on, I mean, clearly, you're going to feel muscle tension. Warren's left glute should be like his right, engaged when he's actually doing something and relaxed when he's lying around. Instead, it was tensed up, ready for action all the time. And chronically tense muscles like that can eventually pull other muscles out of alignment. As Rose worked out all that tension, she said something that took both Warren and me by surprise. Yeah, now, Warren, I, I will tell you, though, you said you're afraid of going out and moving, but... Dude, man, part of this whole thing is you, you have to move tomorrow. Um, what, what do you mean move? Move. You, I, I, want you, I want you to run. I don't care if it's a shuffle, okay, okay. around the block. Um, okay. And if you start feeling good, you have to reel yourself in. I, I don't want you to go farther than like 20 minutes. The goal is to actually let your brain also know that it can move without being in pain. Okay, that's as much of the reprogramming here as as uh as any part of the muscle there it, it, it becomes a mental block you know and then when you listen to somebody you you realize it's like he he said he's afraid to do it yeah. you know it's like and, and that's just you know and that that's being realistic man it's like if you've been in pain 
trying to do something and that also gives you a pretty good clear indicator of where the pain scale really was you know it had to be significant if it's put it in your brain to say I'm not going to do anything that's going to put me back in heaven forbid you know it's this idea that our brains can perpetuate our injuries I find fascinating Rose was essentially telling Warren that he was going to walk out of her office in better shape than he walked in maybe not completely pain-free but free of a lot of the muscle tension and restrictions he'd walked in with stuff that no doubt was contributing to his discomfort The job for his run the next day, then, was to convince his mind that his body was indeed in a better place. Rose had Warren flip onto his back and point to where exactly he felt the pain when he ran. He said it was right on the bone, near his left adductor. Rose then bent his left leg so his knee was pointing at the ceiling and pushed against the bottom of his left foot, asking him to resist her pressure. When he was able to push back at various angles without feeling any pain, She ruled out tears and scar tissue that might be the source of his problem. Not surprisingly, for someone like Rose, her fingers are her eyes, and they constantly came across clues in the mystery that is Warren's hip pain. So it's crazy because, you know, how much of this could actually be, at least what I feel, just from sitting around and, well, not sitting around, but not running. Yeah. Okay. I should stand up at my desk, too. Well, it's funny because I was just thinking of, of oh, Warren's okay. posture yeah. when he sits in his office. Rose, oh, you, would be, you would be just so dismayed. And she doesn't it, come by and visit a lot, so she's... No, so, so he has a standing desk, but he doesn't use it, and he's got this little table that he sits at with his little um, laptop, so this little screen, and he's hunched over it, <laughs> and he's... You lost any ounce of sympathy that I could ever have for you. It's like, it's like you know, I, I, I have to pull the mom with so many people. Stand up straight. Sit up straight. Right, right. But, no, you're right. You know, I, 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 you're right. You're right. You're right. Rose continued the search. Now her forearms were doing the detective work. She was bent over Warren's right quad for better leverage and was drilling her right forearm down and over the muscles in his leg. Trust me. It is not hyperbole when I say this particular move of Rose's is sheer agony. But remember, this is exactly what Warren asked for. And Rose is constantly monitoring him. It's part of the reason she keeps up a running dialogue, to make sure her clients are within their threshold for pain. Are you a foam roller guy? I, not regularly, but I have. I mean... Okay. Well... I will indicate that this is an area that you need to be getting oh, on. Yeah. So Which think, area are you in? Okay, I'm in his lateral vasti. So if we looked at his quad. My quad. Yeah, no, 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 no. Not just your quad. It's, it's a quad. lateral quad. So if we made your quad was oh, was oh, a outside. clock, okay, and the top of it is 12, we're focusing on the 12 to 3 area. Yeah. Just to clarify, the lateral this quad is, is the outer side. quad. And what does it feel like? What are you feeling? It's uh, tight. It's tight. It's, it's tight. Uh, it, it, you know, and the thing is, what I want to feel, I want to feel muscles move independently of things around them. So it's not just the tightness of muscle tissue, okay? It's 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 the fascia, okay? And it, it's kind of like, um, okay, this is, when I used to teach, we, I used to put, tell them this, it's like, you know, you know that the meat inside of a sausage is ground up, but yet it still holds that shape because of the casing it's in. 
So if you think about fascia as being that casing, man, I can pulverize his muscle tissue, but it's still gonna stay in a shape of dysfunction and not pull where it needs, in the plane of movement that it needs to. So my goal is to separate, okay? That's where the activity comes in within 12, 24 hours later, because you're gonna actually create that pull so that those muscles are re-educating themselves into their proper plane. Uh, so the pain that Warren feels right now is the separation of the fascia, the casing, from, well, from the sausage of his muscle, basically. Right now, Warren's muscles are not only tight, but they're essentially glued to their casing, and that limits his range of motion. If he'd gone for a run before laying on Rosa's table, he literally wouldn't have hit his stride because his muscles are so bound up. For as horrible as it feels, Rosa's pulverizing forearms are dissolving that glue. And that gives him a brief window to go out and run and reestablish the movement pattern of a running stride. So if you don't move, okay, any fascial stuck, whatever that we just unstuck, um, the likelihood of it going back and, and just re-adhering, you have to move. Because when you move your, your body, your muscles are going to be, and they have to glide within that fascial sleeve, um, you know, with it. Um, and and not, not, not within the sleeve, but that you want them to glide over the other muscles that are there, right. okay? And, and, and you're creating the work basically from the inside out. So. And, and do you have like a period of time? I mean, so he, he needs Within to- Within 24 hours. That's my, that's my benchmark. So, so I should run tomorrow? I think you should get, walk. And I'll tell you what, walk with significant stride, okay? With the and arms up. You, yep, like you mean business, dude. Uh, exactly. Like, like, right. like no one in Emmaus is going to mess with no. the tomorrow. <laughs> the burrow's not going to He's going to be going out at like 4.30 in the morning That's so okay. no one sees him. <laughs> Finally, it was over. Warren had been on Rose's table for nearly 90 minutes, and he was beat. But he knew what he had to do. He had to start running very, very easy for very short periods of time to rewire both his body and his brain. He had to quit hunching over his laptop and start using his stand-up desk, focusing on proper posture. And he had to stay diligent with foam rolling his outer or lateral quads. Rose didn't expect that Warren's pain would vanish after one session with her steel beam forearms and plier-like fingers. His wouldn't be the near-instant recovery that I'd experienced with a pain in my butt. But Rose was confident that after months of not running, of actually being afraid to run, Warren could now hit the roads. It would take time, careful maintenance, and posture best practices, but he'd eventually get back to the lunch runs that he missed so much. As Warren got changed, I asked Rose what runners could do to avoid getting into painful situations like Warren's in the first place. I think cross-training with something else is probably the best thing that you can do, hands down. Because, you know, I don't have many trail runners that need to come to me. That, that's significant, you know. They're, they're, they're lateral. They're hopping. They're rolling. They're all over the doggone place. It, it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on, but you're moving. You know, your shoulders are truly moving independently of your pelvis. And it, 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 that's that mobility and, and knowing where your body is in, in space is, is huge. Yeah, cross-train. I mean, I encourage yoga almost any time just because of that. It takes you out of that, that, that linear pattern and makes you move away from the midline. Creates stability. Yeah, cross-train. That's if one day a week. Come on, give me one day. 
One day we'll solve so many problems. <laughs> I knew Warren wanted nothing more than to recover from this injury. So I hoped he'd follow through with Rose's advice. But in the car ride home, he was already telling me how busy he was going to be the next day. I was afraid he'd miss that vital 24-hour window. But the next afternoon, he showed up in my office triumphant. He'd run. It was a super slow and super short run, but he'd done it. And while it hadn't been entirely pain-free, it hadn't been agonizing either. He looked hopeful and grateful. A couple days later, I swung by his office. And lo and behold, the guy was standing. At his desk, staring at his nice big monitor. No more hunched shoulders, no more crouching like a jockey over a tiny laptop screen. Score another for Rose. It's now been about four months since Warren saw Rose, and he's been diligent in following her advice. He's still standing at, rather than hunching over, his desk. He uses a foam roller, and he gets out on his bike at least once a week. And today, I am happy to report, he is back. He's logging up to 25 miles a week now. They aren't fast miles, but he's running them, and he's running them without pain. And best of all, for Warren, he's reconnected with his running crew. In 2003, Steve Magnus ran a 401 mile, which at the time ranked him number one in the U.S. as a high school athlete. As a collegiate runner, he ran for both Rice University and the University of Houston. Today, he's head cross-country coach at the University of Houston. As a coach, he's guided athletes of every level, from high school runners to Olympic athletes. A couple runners he's worked with who may be familiar to listeners include Sarah Hall, a professional track athlete turned marathoner, who was married to Ryan Hall, and marathoner Neely Spence Gracie, who was on the cover of our May 2016 issue with her dog Strider. Today, Steve has nearly 20 pro runners on his roster. In addition to his coaching duties, Steve also lectures on strength and conditioning at St. Mary's University in the United Kingdom. And he's an author of two books. His first, The Science of Running, How to Find Your Limit and Train to Maximize Your Performance, came out in 2014. His second book, Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with a New Science of Success, is out this month. In it, Steve and co-author Brad Stolberg explain how great performers across a range of fields not only became so great at what they do, but how they sustain such high levels of performance. As Steve and Brad discovered, the strategies and practices used by these top performers are often backed up by research, research that, it turns out, has very practical applications for runners. Training editor Megan Keita spoke with Steve recently about what he learned through researching the book and how he's using it to improve his own performance, not only as a runner, but as a coach. So let's just start by um, talking about how this book came about. Um, I know that you co-wrote it with Brad Stolberg, who is a frequent Runner's World contributor. Um, how did the two of you decide to write this book together? You know, it's an interesting story because Brad and I met like online in the sense that he started following me, I think, on Twitter and then reached uh -huh. out for a piece that he was doing and said, hey, can I interview you? Um, about coaching. So I said, yeah, sure. So we got to talking and we did the piece and then we just talked 
for a while afterwards and then exchanged emails for a couple months. And then one month it comes by and, and Brad sends an email and says, hey, I got this idea for a book and I really think it's going to be good and I really want to do it, but I've never written a book. I want to know if you think it's good. So I read through the email and like a light bulb went off and I was like, oh my gosh. I wrote him back and I said, Brad, like I had the same idea for a book and here is 40 pages, 40 pages of notes that I've been collecting like so that I can write this. So it, it was one of those weird life coincidences where you're just like, oh my gosh, this was meant to be. So we just, you know, started collaborating and became really good friends in the process. That's so funny. You guys are like uh, psychically linked or something. And uh, if it weren't for Twitter, you never would have found each other. That's a pretty cool story. There you go. I know. Some some benefit of social media, I guess. Yes, for sure. So, y- you know... It sounds like this idea was both of yours, you know, independently. And, you know, if you had to describe this book, Peak Performance, in just a few sentences, what would you say? Oh, man, it's hard to describe. But what I would say is what we did is we we were curious about performance in the sense that I deal with athletes, he deals with athletes and runners. And we said, hey, all these runners do similar things, but I wonder what it's like outside of running. So we essentially looked at what do top performers in all fields do and are there similarities that we can draw back? Because our thesis was essentially that like performance is performance, so regardless of whether you're running or writing or sculpting or a, a medical doctor, it's all the same. So that's kind of the theme of the book. Yeah, I really thought that that's what made this book so cool and interesting is that, you know, I've read a lot of running books in my time, as you might imagine, (laughs) and they're all so focused on what runners do to succeed or even what athletes in general do to succeed. But in your book, you interview like the drummer who tours with Taylor Swift. And I just thought that was so interesting that, you, you know, you could take these completely different people who would never appear in a traditional running book. And, you know, you interviewed him about his warm-up routine. Like, of course a drummer would have to warm up before playing a two-hour show. I just never thought about it before. Right. And that's what we found, too. It's all these things that you never think about. You're like, oh, of course that makes sense. Of course that translates back to running. But you never put those pieces together. And, like, as a coach working with, you know, from beginner to elite professional runners, what what I started to notice in, in my own coaching is, like, the things influencing it weren't necessarily always the running books or the training articles. It was taking like pieces of information from like psychology or a business book and and bringing that back into my own coaching. So we really thought like, well, if that's happening and I'm learning these lessons, we're learning these lessons and applying it to people who are, you know, trying to make the Olympics. Like, I wonder if there's more lessons out there. And and that's what this book kind of led to. And that that Taylor Swift's drummer, Matt Billingsley, Uh, example is a great one because it's literally we were just having a conversation on the phone and he just goes through his warm-up and we're like oh my gosh like that's the same thing I do like mentally and almost physically getting ready for a 5k race like of course this fits and there were so many moments like that where we were talking to someone who maybe had never run a step in their life but they described the concept that I'm like that that fits perfectly for what we're mm-hmm. trying to do in, in trying to improve running performance. How did you even 
find or think to interview the Taylor Swift drummer? Um, so it, it kind of came out about maybe selfishly. He he ended up following me on Twitter again. Thank God for social media. Um, because he'd read a piece that I wrote on like strength training in a, a strength training blog, right? So mm-hmm. he read that, he followed me on Twitter and I'm like, my my younger sister who's 10 years younger than me is a big Taylor Swift fan. So she was like, that's Taylor Swift's drummer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so she thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I'm like, okay. So I just reached out to him. I was like, hey, can we like... I don't know any other drummers at that level. Like, I'm going to talk mm-hmm. to you because you're obviously really good because like, mm-hmm. you've played in packed stadiums. And we just went in with the idea of like, all right, let's talk to you about like your craft and how you get ready to perform. So uh, Matt was a really interesting guy in that uh, he was a drummer. And then beforehand, he actually took up personal training um, before he made it big time. So uh, mm. He had a lot of connections with this stuff, and I think the the most inter- there were two two lessons that we took away from him. One you kind of mentioned earlier, and that how we warmed up. And I never thought about musicians warming up, but it just makes sense. Like he's going to be out there two hours on the drums, a very physically demanding activity. Like of course he has to get ready, but uh, it was interesting in that Matt's warm up included you know, physical exercises, almost like the drills or stretches that we would do before a race. Like, that's how he got ready. He didn't, like, actually drum. He said, that is what I need to do to get my body physically ready. And then he also Mm -hmm. said, like, it's almost become a ritual and that I do these things in a row so that I'm mentally ready. So that lesson was the same coming back to whatever we do in life, but also running in the sense that, like a warm up is not just like getting us physically ready. It should almost be like this ritual to get us mentally in the right space to where we need to to perform on that day. And I think that's a powerful message that a lot of times what happens is we just like go through the motions on like, oh, I need to warm up. So I'm going to go jog a little bit and then maybe I'll do like a stride and then I'll be ready to go. But he was very deliberate about how to mm-hmm. get ready. Right. He did everything in a certain order and a certain amount of time for each move that he did. Um, and, and is there some kind of connection between, you know, saving a sequence of events for hard workouts and races and like making sure to do that exact same sequence before every single time you expect your body to perform? Is there like a physical outcome that comes of that? Yeah. So what happens is, is your body almost creates like a habit out of it. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and like it, and what you can do is you can almost ingrain like this, this habit and this pattern so that if you do this sequence, like your body will know where to go. And in talking to another researcher, but also high performer, um, who worked with us field hockey, like he did some interesting experiments where he showed like, if he could do the right sequence for people and it was something that they've done before but they also enjoyed like with field hockey people he had them like try you know with music or with um by doing like some sprint workout or an endurance workout before their warm-up um and what he found was very similar to 
other things is that the biology followed. So mm-hmm. you could get like a, a little bump in natural testosterone if you like followed your warm up sequence and just like ingrained that so that like every time you raced, you did this warm up sequence or every time you did a hard workout, you did this warm up sequence and the body just kind of naturally went there. So that you got this bump in testosterone, which we know from research helps our competitiveness, helps our like recovery and repair and strength and all these good things that um, can help us perform. So I'm sure you talked to, I mean, I know that you talked to a lot of different kinds of people for this book um, and of all the kind of strategies that you learned about from those people, which was most surprising to you? You know, I think the most interesting one was we we stopped by um, a Google subsidiary uh, called Silly Search Inside Yourself that um, is based on like meditation practice. Now, I never like meditated in my life. Um, I considered like running my meditation. Right. Mm -hmm. So we go there. We sit down with them. He was an old friend of Brad. So Brad put us in contact and they just start describing, you know, what meditation does and like what the men- mentality of it and the brain science behind it is. And I'm just sitting there and listening to him describing like it's not about, you know, fighting the stress or fighting your mind when all these thoughts come in. It's about like accepting them, creating space so that we don't have an emotional reaction. And I'm listening to him and and Brad and I both had the same reaction and we're thinking like oh my gosh, like that is the same thing that I'm trying to tell runners. Like when Mm -hmm. it starts to really hurt in a race, you don't have what I'd call a freak out moment. You Mm -hmm. try and have what we've termed calm conversations with yourself so that you like can talk yourself through the pain and like cope with it and keep the pace going. And, And really hearing that like meditation and dealing with thoughts and emotions is is almost the same as us like running and dealing with the fatigue and pain. It's that same mental process that was really eye opening to me because it showed mm-hmm. like the connections that you can have, and then it also like added some different different ways for me for us to address that issue with runners. Right. Yeah. One of one of the most interesting parts of the book to me was that calm conversation section. And when I read that, it it sounded like you've been doing that with your athletes for years, even before you made this connection to meditation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it's something that we just, honestly, we just kind of figured out. I'd ask my runners, like, how'd you feel during this? Like, what was the point? You know, I noticed during the 5K, like, you let that pack go when you decided to settle. Like, what was the decision there? And then also in my own running, like, I would notice like in training with some of my better college kids that there would just be points where they'd keep pushing on a like really hard tempo run. And I just in my mind almost have like this freak out moment where I was like, I can't do it. I can't make it two more miles like I'm done. And if I just Mm -hmm. like let that happen, I would go from running, you know, for myself, five minute mile pace to like six minute mile pace in like an instant. And it was Mm -hmm. just like that reaction. So I really kind of developed that as like coaching cue out of like that those experiences. So like having an understanding of how it actually worked in the brain and then also having an understanding of like how we can work on it outside of just like pushing us ourselves really hard in practice and then like trying to deal with it. 
uh, mm-hmm. really benefits runners, I think. Right. Yeah, that's kind of cool that you just noticed that negative thoughts make you go slower. Positive thoughts prevent that slowdown without kind of realizing the science behind it until you went to to write this book. Um, there's another thing in the book that is mentioned that you had been doing with your athletes before you necessarily knew that there was science to back up why you were doing it. Um, I, I know that you encourage your athletes to hang out together after hard workouts. Could you kind of talk about, you know, how you got the idea to do that and then what you learned while researching this book that showed that this is actually a scientifically backed thing to help recovery? So, you know, what I noticed is like, you know, we do a cool down for a reason, like after really hard workouts or a race, right? It's t- to kind of bring the body back down to normal. And mm-hmm. and what I noticed is like with college athletes, I'm training as they'd go from like working out really hard in the morning and then it would be like straight off to class and they'd be like a quick shower and disheveled and they'd look stressed getting out. So what we, what I realized is like, mentally and emotionally like they weren't coming down off the stress of the workout so Mm -hmm. and then they were going to class and and that stress level just kept high so um we just saw and what i saw we we keep track of stress levels in like a simple questionnaire with my college athletes is like stress levels would stay high um perceived stress levels would stay high for several days so Mm -hmm. i was just like well how do we how do we implement essentially a cool down um only mentally and psychologically so i said all right like these guys and gals like do the best when they're just like hanging out and like can you know gossip and talk and like you know have Mm -hmm. fun so i was just like all right well we're just gonna build that time in so we we almost built in like a post-workout like uh get together where we had like some breakfast items there and it gave them a chance to just you know converse and like get away from like hey i'm trying to hit this split on the run and and run Mm -hmm. these times and what i noticed is it really just helped them recover and come back so that they could handle stuff and in researching this book like we found some really interesting evidence that showed that um scientifically it makes perfect sense because what happens is if you have like if you have that almost social recovery that's what we call it is it mm-hmm. it can switch your hormone states so you go from like really high cortisol levels post workout which cortisol is the the stress hormone right mm-hmm. and right. and if we if we socialize if we have a meal together if we spend our cool down like you know hanging out and joking what happens is cortisol drops and testosterone which is essentially your like a recovery building up uh, muscle repair uh, hormone increases. Mm-hmm. So you, you flip that ratio. And what that does is it puts your body in a state where it's it's prepared to recover and repair from all that stress you just put on, um, put yourself under. And what's, right. what's more interesting is that there's some really interesting research that shows that that effect can carry on for several days to like your next race or game. Mm-hmm. So that your stress level stays low until you have to get stressed again, basically? Exactly. And that's what you want, because like if your stress level can keep low and you can keep your testosterone level 
uh, relatively high naturally, um, then you're in the perfect place to be calm, cool, collected, but also uh, ready to compete on like race day. Yeah, uh, ready to compete on race day. That's another part of your book that was really interesting to me. You, This was actually a study that came from swimmers, so it is an athlete-based study, but um, research on like elite swimmers versus non-elite swimmers showed really different um, perceptions of pre-race anxiety and stress. Um, basically, the athletes who performed better were the ones who thought of their nerves as excitement instead of as something they needed to fight off or as a problem. So that's kind of that kind of seems to tie in with what you just said. Um, could you talk a little bit about that that idea of reframing nerves? Yeah, exactly. You know, the stress and anxiety, like pre-race, pre-competition, is really something that you know, can throw a wrench into any runner's plans. Like it, it affects everyone from beginner to like Olympic champion. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and this is one instance where as a coach, I, I think I was doing it wrong. Like I'd always tell my athletes like, hey, calm down, stay relaxed and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and what happens is when I'm telling them, hey, relax, is I'm sending their, their minds and their brains a signal that says, what they interpret is they're 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 thinking like oh my gosh like coach thinks I'm really stressed I must look really stressed so it's uh-huh. like counterintuitive something must be wrong <laughs> exactly and it increases their stress levels but what what psychologists and researchers have found is that like our perception of the stress really impacts how it affects us so you mentioned mm-hmm. that swimming study is that if we see stress as something that's like preparing us to go to battle like something mm-hmm. that's that's like freeing up energy that's giving us like that adrenaline that we all know can improve our performance then high stress levels or relatively high stress levels can actually lead to improved performance but mm-hmm. if we see that same stress levels as like oh my gosh stress is something i don't want stress is negative then what mm-hmm. happens is you see a, your performance plummets and the the funny thing is or the interesting thing is this extends beyond exercise and running is they've Mm -hmm. actually done research that shows that um, your perception of stress, whether it's like a good thing and it challenges you or a bad thing and it it can hurt you, can impact things like um, life expectancy, disease uh, susceptibility and that stuff because your brain essentially tells you like how to interpret this. And if you interpret it negatively, then like the consequences are negative. Right. The consequences higher stress hormones more often, right? Exactly. Is there anything else you learned in this book that kind of made you rethink how you were handling your athletes or how what kind of coaching advice you were giving them? Oh, man, that's a, that's a big question. I'm always reevaluating things. Um, I, I would say the stress thing is the biggest, but I think also um, – Probably the emphasis on team and and um, having purpose was another big one, in, mm-hmm. in the sense that like it's almost cliche to say like, hey, you're doing this for the team, like everyone come together. Or with individual athletes, like you think like, hey, they're motivated enough to like run a PR or make the Olympic trials or something like that. But what I really noticed um, in researching this book was the power of 
having like a self-transcending purpose and having like a reason for running that is much bigger than yourself and how mm -hmm. how almost like that is the biggest performance enhancement um, method that we can use. So I've, I've spent a lot of time with individual runners, like trying to get down to that level and, and helping them um, coalesce and, and develop a, a purpose that is beyond like, oh, like I just want to PR because like it makes me look better. Like mm -hmm. so, so really developing that sense of purpose uh, was an eye opener. Yeah, that's an interesting part of the book. How I know that you work with a lot of athletes who are on teams, but in terms of individual athletes, how do you encourage them or how can they find a sense of purpose if they don't have like a team to perform for? Yeah, it, it's really about tying it to something that means something and that, that you care about. So that's why I think like running for a cause that you care about is 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 important and beyond just the fact that the cause benefits, but it's important for performance. If you're doing it for, you know, cancer patients or your mom, mm -hmm. your mom had some sort of disease and you're dedicating it to that, like it will literally improve your performance. So it, not, A is for a cause. And then B, I think is like, think of the support group that you have that allows you to run right mm -hmm. whether you're you know married or single or whatever you you have family you have husbands and wives you have kids that allow you to have like that hour a day where you can get out on your run um you have jobs that allow you the flexibility to go race on the weekends if we step back and we look there's a lot of people that are like allow us to do the things that we do and i think like realizing that and having that sense of purpose that it's not just you on the starting line then it's a whole host of people that allowed you to get there can really be a, a lot of benefit yeah that's really interesting a big tenant of this book is what you guys call the is it the stress equation or the the growth equation the yeah. growth equation yeah. yeah um so stress plus rest equals growth so stress, you know, it can be a negative thing if you allow it to go on for too long, but little doses of stress are necessary for growth, correct? C correct. And I think I think what we're trying to get across is that a lot of people, a lot of times people think, think of things as black and white and like good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is that like, just like as you work out, like a little bit of high stress work, a little bit of like really fast intervals um, is how you get better. Like it's it's what the stimulus is to adapt. It's the trigger to adapt. Like we have to push ourselves to a place that, it, that is maybe just beyond like our normal reaches so that you send the body and the mind a signal that like, hey, we need to get ready for this in case we approach it again. And, and the other mm -hmm. part of that is that without the rest, like we don't adapt. So a lot of people have this like misconception that in running, um, I get better during the hard workouts. Like I get better during the long runs or the hard tempos or the mile repeats. And the reality is like, that's when you stress yourself, but your body actually adapts during the like easy runs, the downtime, mm -hmm. the sleep. And I think like realizing that puts the emphasis on making sure that you give your body time to adapt because a lot of times what happens is um, 
competitive people, they just think, oh, I want to get better. I want to get better. So I need to do more and I need to do harder things. And they'll just do more runs, harder workouts, and they won't give themselves or their body that period to, to adapt, especially if, you know, you work a job and have a family and stuff. Um, you don't mm -hmm. emphasize the rest. So what we want people to do is almost have like a mindset shift where it's like just how you would plan your hard stressful efforts is plan your uh, rest efforts because they're just as important. Yeah, for sure. There's a concept you introduced called just manageable challenges, which is that sweet spot between, you know, taking on a goal that you're almost sure you can do and taking on a goal that's so far beyond where you are right now that it's almost impossible. So to to grow, you need to find that in between. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how runners can find that perfect balance between stress and rest and between, you know, a goal that's too easy and a goal that's way too hard. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like the, the magic question, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I think my recommendation is always to go just a little bit um, beyond what you, what you've done so where you are right now is like your your set point it's like the the baseline and what you're trying to do is when you're really trying to stress so that you can get better is to push like just beyond that so you don't go from like zero to 100 you don't go from like a five mile long run to 20 mile long run right mm -hmm, if you've only right. done five you say all right like i'm gonna push it one mile longer um or if you've mm -hmm. only done you know mile repeats that seven minute pace you don't try and do them at six minute pace you try and do them a little bit faster and what you're trying to do is like push so that it's just a little bit beyond your reach so you challenges you a little bit and i think the other thing that that may help um runners realize where that is is really start paying attention to and even tracking like how hard you think workouts and runs are so um I always say on a 1 to 10 scale, if you're really trying to push it, you should maybe be an 8 and possibly a 9, but it should be very, very rare that you should be a 10, like maxed out. You should mm -hmm. save those for race day. So I always say like a just manageable challenge in terms of a workout is a workout where you're really having to like work and fight to get on it. But when you finish it, you think like, okay, I could have eked out one more rep. Right. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing if I'm doing 800 meter repeats, I I could have done one more. And that shows you that you're pushing hard enough, but you're not pushing so hard that you're going to be exhausted and not being able to recover. Right. That makes sense. And then in terms of rest, how can a runner know that they're getting the proper amount of, say, easy or recovery days in between those efforts? Yeah, so there I think it's, again, you have to pay attention to how you feel a little bit. But um, what I always suggest is, are your easy days taking away from your key sessions? So do you feel tired? Do you feel excessively tired going into your next key session? So let's say we have a hard workout on Monday, and then we try and do one again on Thursday, right? But Thursday, we're feeling pretty run down and we're not hitting our times that we think we're capable of hitting or we're taking a lot more effort going into it, then that means you didn't have enough space in between. You didn't have enough rest days or you didn't take enough like 
you didn't keep your runs easy enough in between. And that means you need to expand that a little bit. And I think it's this kind of push and pull that you use of like almost trial and error of seeing like, all right, where's that sweet spot where I just, I recovered fully, but I'm not sitting around for several days or running incredibly easy for several days so that I'm overly recovered. So you're looking for that sweet spot in between. Right. And that could that sweet spot almost be a moving target? Like if you have a really busy week, maybe you need, you know, three easy days in between hard workouts, whereas on a, you know, more relaxed week where you get a better, better sleep and are eating better, you might only need two days. Is that generally the case? Absolutely. I think people forget that, you know, stress is stress. And it doesn't matter if it comes from like picking up the kids from school or like running 10 miles, like it it still affects you. So um, you have to take into consideration like life stress and all that and see how it impacts you. You know, I'll give you an example. I have a I have an athlete who uh, competed for the USA on the World Half Marathon Championship team. But she's a school teacher. She's a, a, a kindergarten school teacher. So she only, she has like four easy days in between like her hard sessions. And mm-hmm. for a really elite athlete, she runs 71 minutes for half marathon. So that's flying. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> but for a normal like elite athlete, you might only have like a day or two in between. But because she, you know, looks after kindergarten kids for, you know, that long, like... That's stressful. Yep, exactly. (laughs) She knows, like, she can't press it as hard. So she runs better when we have, like, more built-in recovery than any other probably elite in the country. But it's just, you know, those are the demands that you have to consider. So um, as a runner, like, you got to take into account life. If you don't, you're in for, you know, a tough time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and in your everyday runners that you coach, not the elites, yep. but just the average person who's trying to qualify for Boston or break four hours in a marathon, do you find that most of them are resting too much or stressing too much? And why do you think that is? You know, what What I think is people, um, your everyday runner generally stresses at the wrong time and, and compacts it into like a short period of time based on their work schedule. A lot of times what you see is they'll try and make things up on the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So so I can't tell you how many runners I have, I just regular, you know, who trying to break four hours in a marathon who might say, all right, like Saturday, I'm going to do a really hard workout and then I'm going to come back Sunday and I'm going to do my longest run to prepare for the marathon and then I'm going to be dead and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be, you know, run really little for the intervening times. And they think Mm -hmm. that since like I work during the week, I have to make up. But what they're really doing is like just digging a big hole and Mm -hmm. one that their body can't like recover out of. So I I think that is number one is like, sometimes it's better to like, even if you can't work quite as hard in the middle of the week to have like a moderately hard workout, just so you have some space in between the things that you do. And that's, that's probably, you know, problem number one that I see with your average everyday runner. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like familiar to me as an average every everyday runner um so it's it's kind of interesting that you know you can look as a coach you can look at somebody else's schedule 
and be able to see that they're digging themselves into this hole in a in a way that um, everyday runners might not n- know that themselves. And the book also makes another interesting argument for working with a coach that I thought was really cool. Um, you, you guys talked about the habit of a few different CEOs, tech CEOs, to have a workplace uniform that they wear every single day so that they never have to make a decision about what to wear to work. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting in that that's how I felt when I was working with a coach. I had somebody else to make the decisions about my running for me, and I just had to do the work. Can you talk a little bit about like the science behind that and and what the takeaway is for the everyday runner? Sure. So just like we have physical fatigue, we have mental fatigue, right? So just like mm-hmm. I would get tired if I went out and ran 20 miles right now, I get tired. Like my, my mind actually gets tired if I spend a lot of time making decisions and like, you know, thinking uh, really hard on problems or something like that. So the same thing happens when you have too many decisions, right? So they call it decision fatigue. If if I'm obsessing throughout the day over like, what should I wear? What should I eat? Like, when should I do my run? When's the mm-hmm. optimal time to make like these chores? If I'm stressing over every decision, then by the end of the day, I'm fatigued and I don't wanna do mm-hmm. anything. Like, I don't wanna go out the door and do the run. And, and research backs this up. So it's the same as like after a 20 mile run, like I wanna sit on the couch. After a day of making decisions, like you're gonna wanna do the same thing, sit on the couch and uh, you know watch TV. And that's what a lot of us do a lot of times. But mm-hmm. what, what they found is that like if you essentially can automate those decisions, like it doesn't take away, it doesn't fatigue you, right? So if, mm-hmm. if I don't have to, reach into my closet and look at everything that I need to, you know, every choice that I have to make out of a hundred, you know, different um, clothes I could wear. If I don't have to make the decision of what workout should I do today, or I'm feeling a little, a little tired, should I do my long run? If I can just turn that over to a coach, then I'm Mm -hmm. not going to get mentally fatigued. It's, it becomes not a decision. It becomes automated. So you're much more likely to just go, forward and go through with it so Mm -hmm. to you know your everyday runner what we say is like find a coach so that you don't have to you know debate in your mind over it and then automate it so the sense that like it's no longer a choice of if I should you know get up and do my run it's almost like brushing our teeth has become like we just do Mm -hmm. it we don't think about it we just know that like you know what I'm gonna brush my teeth because this is what I always do Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely like a good tip for runners who can afford a coach. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, you know, runners who might not be necessarily training really hard for a huge goal, but they still want to perform their best and uh, they they can't hire a coach right now. Is there anything that the everyday runner could do to kind of automate their training without having this other person to make all the decisions for them? Yeah, what I would say is just have a baseline expectation, right? It doesn't have to be a grand thought out schedule or anything like that, but it has to be, it it can be a baseline expectation of like, you know what, every week 
I'm going to do a long run and at least two other runs, right? Mm -hmm. Or three other runs, whatever your baseline expectation is. And then that just becomes like, this is expected. Like, I don't have Mm -hmm. to make a decision on this. If I want to do more, fine, that's bonus and I'll feel good about it. But this is like my minimum. This is my expectation and I'm just going to get this done. And maybe write it on your calendar or your mirror or your wall or whatever it is to remind yourself and just have this baseline expectation so that like it doesn't become an everyday thing. And that's what you're trying to prevent is that everyday struggle from when your alarm goes off is like, do I hit the alarm and sleep a couple more minutes or do I get up and do my run? And what you mm-hmm. what you want is you, you just want it to be like almost second nature. Like it's the same thing, almost create rules for yourself. Like, so I, I'm sure you're the same way, but you know, it's never a question of, am I going to go to into the office today or am I not going into this <laughs> office? Like, I don't get to make that decision. It just is right. there. Like, I plan my mm-hmm. life around it. Like, I'm going to get in unless something is horribly wrong. Make running right. in, in somewhat the same way. That was Runner's World Training Editor Megan Keita speaking with coach Steve Magnus about his new book, Peak Performance, How to Find Your Limit and Train to Maximize Your Performance, published by Rodale, and now available on Amazon. Steve co-authored the book with writer Brad Stolberg. Coming up, Kit and Brian select a few of their favorite stories from the week that was. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and editor Kit Fox. Well, people have been clamoring for this. We haven't done a kick in a while, Kit Fox, um, but we're back in the studio finally. It's so good to be back. Um, so while we haven't seen each other in the studio, we have been going on some you know, of our lunch runs recently, and um, it, it, they've been pretty miserable with the heat. Awful. Just terrible. <laughs> yeah, so we've, we've barreled through a lot of tough runs recently, um, and... Just really good timing. Our four beginners only columnist Susan Paul had a, a pretty popular story last week helping a reader who um, really, just like you, who can't stand running in the heat. And she had some pretty timely and helpful tips to at least kind of help you mentally manage um, those tough conditions now that the, the sun's out on a regular basis and it's just beating down on you during the run. Yeah, I enjoyed this story because my <laughs> ideal temperature is like 42. Yeah, and you didn't submit this, right? Uh, this wasn't I, your question? I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> okay. But yeah, ideal temp is like 42. When it's 85 out, I don't understand why people go outside when it's warmer than 75 degrees. Um, but we do, and we mm-hmm. run. Um, you know, earlier this week, we had just, just an awful, miserable hot run. Mm-hmm. But what this article goes into is a, is a couple things. Um just sort of approaching outdoor running from a mental standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the important things that I need to keep in mind is changing your expectations. Yeah. The heat's going to slow you down. There's no getting around that. Yeah. Um, it's not that you're, you know, out of shape or worse off than you were in the cool. It's just it's tougher to run in the heat. Yeah, it's not just racing but a training run. You should dial back that pace a little bit so you can manage that easy four miles. Um, she had other really good tips like run in the morning when it's just a little bit cooler and there might not be as much overhead sun. Run in the evening, run with a group because they'll give you motivation to get out. Um, 
Now, that being said, um, there are conditions like ones we've been running in, like over 90 degrees and super high humidity where you should probably stay inside and you can actually get in a good treadmill workout. And on that note, we actually have a brand new on-demand streaming treadmill workouts that you can check out on our website. So you can kind of have great interval-based hill workouts wherever you go. So and we'll have that link that on sweet, our... sweet, sweet air conditioning. As yeah, great air conditioning. And water right there oh, yeah. by you. Maybe even listen to a podcast while yeah, you're doing yeah, it. Yeah. Actually, you need to pay attention to you the do. actual video. <laughs> but um, we'll have a link to those on our episode page on runnersworld.com slash audio. Um, but the one benefit I do see to getting outside and trying to deal with the heat um, when it when it is in that range where you can get out is it's going to acclimate you a little bit better for when you're racing in the fall. Yeah, putting on the science hat real quick, what happens when you do run in the heat is your body produces an excess amount of blood because um, it helps cool, cool off the muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are training in the heat and you're building up you know, this extra blood, that's that's more oxygen that's going to get your muscles and it, you're just going to be in better shape when it cools off in the fall. Yeah, what you're doing now carries over to even when it's down 30 or, you know, even just 20 degrees. So that's that's a benefit that you're giving yourself now for later. So I, I do try to tell myself that. Um, and, it, and it's something that I try to tell myself when you guys come over to my desk <laughs> and it's 87 degrees out. 75% humidity, and you're like, let's go do the runs that aren't in the shade. Let's go, carry on this unshaded route. Um, yep. But other things you can try, there's a pre-cooling, guzzle on some super cold drink, like a, a slushy. even. Um, people have done that for studies. Um, you can put on a cold towel over your head just to wipe it down to get that body temperature down. Don't look at me weird when I sit in the office kitchen fridge. Yeah, that's not weird minutes. at all. And then when... Um, if you are trying to acclimate to the heat and um, you just you're not able to get out that often, um, you could. Uh, one study in the New York Times they showed that um, just sitting in a hot bath um, helped people acclimate themselves, or maybe even something like a sauna is a way to get that body um, uh, used to these uh, tough conditions. Kit. Yeah, I don't do saunas. You don't. Why don't you do saunas? My worst fear in life is to be locked inside a sauna. <laughs> Nope, don't do saunas. Um, I'll just continue to actually run in this god-awful weather we've been having. Kit is scared of saunas. Know that for future reference. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the celebrity front. Um, We recently featured Travis Barker, um, an awesome drummer from Blink-182, a band from my youth. You were kind of a pup when they they were first coming out. Or did you know about Blink-182? I mean, I knew about Blink-182. I was, you know, hip. With the times in, in elementary school. <laughs> okay, okay. But um, there's still a band that I kind of have on my running playlist. I was happy to see Travis in our I'm a Runner in the July issue of Runner's World. Um, and last week we posted um, his video from the photo shoot, and that got a lot of attention. Um, here's a clip of Travis talking about um, his training and his running. The least amount I like to do a day is like three miles in about like 20, 25 minutes. If I have the time, I like to run for an hour straight. I find that it helps my cardio. Usually we do hour and a half to two hour sets. So my stamina's definitely gotta be there. Yeah, and for a little background, Travis said he was never a runner until um, one of his sons, Landon, was on the way and he just kept at it. And then um, his story doesn't end there because in 2008, he was in a terrible plane crash. He said about 65% of his body was burned. Doctors were saying, 
that his right foot might be amputated. Um, he was able to keep it. They said, you're not going to run again. You might not be able to play drums again. So there goes his living. Um, but he he fought back against those expectations and he was at it again. Yeah. I mean, he said that like in the hospital w- uh, when they told him those kind of limitations, he made it a goal. He said, I'm going to play drums again and I'm going to run again. And, and he said about six to eight months later after this crash, he was doing both. Um, so running has also become a big part of his life because he was um, in – you know, an addict. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the my favorite quotes from the piece is that he's uh, given up these bad habits and he's become addicted to running. Right. So a really cool thing. You should check it out. Um, his I'm a Runner in the July issue. What what else did you find interesting in the story? There were a couple other things that I liked a lot. Well, I love uh, my favorite detail is that when he goes, you know, he's selling out arenas, mm-hmm. famous arenas all over the country and world. And when they have to do sound check, the arena's empty. So he does sound check, and then he runs stairs. Yeah, you have a lot of time to kill. Famous empty arenas. He just runs up and down stairs. I yeah. think that's awesome. The other fun fact, um, he doesn't listen to music when he runs. I hope he listens to podcasts. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he'll listen to this In one. case he is. Uh, hey, Travis. Yeah. You're pretty um, cool. All right. So we were able to dust off the cobwebs a little bit here, Kit, and uh, do the kick one more time. Um, a couple of housekeeping notes before we go. Um, you actually, um, it's your story on this week's Human Race episode. It's called Don't Call It a Comeback. It's episode number 23. Definitely check it out. Give people a little bit of a, uh, a plug of what this story is about in uh, runner Brandon Hudgens. Yeah, so I tracked the story of elite runner Brandon Hudgens, and I first met him back at the 2016 Olympic trials, and I wrote a story back then um, kind of about how he had the greatest comeback story of the trials. So he's got this really rare autoimmune disease called vasculitis, and kind of like cancer, it relapses, um, and it always lurks but he you know you recover and then it relapses and when it does it steals all his talent away so the story is basically about uh what it's like to want something so bad that you decide to chase your dreams but then your body decides usually when things are going really well to take that all away right um i I must admit toward the end of it uh a little tear showing up in my eye um, this morning when I was listening to it. That's, so, uh, that's the goal. That's the goal. Okay, so check out Human Race from this week. Um, one other thing, the USA Outdoor Track and Field Championships are this weekend in Sacramento. Um, people who run well there, they'll represent the U.S. and the world this August in London. So you can follow us online Thursday through Sunday. We'll have a recap for you next week and the kick of some of the interesting stuff from the event. Um, And I should recommend uh, one race if you're going to seek out anything. Gabe Grunwald will be in the 1,500 meters in the first round. Um, We've mentioned her before on the show and in the kick. Four bouts of cancer, currently going through chemo, and she's still racing. She's very inspirational, kind of like Brandon, kind of running through a lot of medical issues. And she's going to have this go in the 1,500 meters. It'll probably be a very uh, emotional race to watch for anyone who loves track or running. Yeah, we'll be watching that race for sure. We're excited. Uh, a lot of track action, of course. So, All right, Kit. Thanks for coming down, doing the kick one more time this week. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Okay, that's nearly it for this week's show. One last thing, though. Send us your training questions. We're planning another training roundtable, and we want to know what you want to know. Whether it's how to better tackle hills, 
deal with a change in elevation on race day, which is actually a question that we just got, so thank you very much to that listener, or why Yasso 800s are so eerily predictive of marathon finish times. You can email us your queries at rwaudio at rodale.com. That's rwaudio at r-o-d-a-l-e dot com. Or tweet them at rwaudio or message us on our Facebook page, Runner's World Audio. Okay, that is it. I'm Christine Fennessy, your host for this week. I produce this show with Sylvia Ryerson and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week when we test just how much of this running stuff our colleagues actually know. We'll see you then.